The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get started... This morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared to study God's Word. Scripture says that we worship the Lord by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of doctrine or by means of truth. That means that we need to make sure that we are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, who's our teacher and guide, and He is the one who helps us to understand the things of the Scriptures. So let's begin with a brief moment of silent prayer make sure that we are indeed in fellowship using the principle of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as a body of believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word that we might learn to think as you think that the mind of Christ might be our mind, that we might have the thinking of Christ in us, that the character of Christ might be formed in us and through us, that we might glorify you in our lives here on earth. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would Help us to understand it and see its application and relevance to each of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So let's open the word of God this morning to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Let me read the first four verses. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Okay, we'll stop there. I don't think we'll make it down to verse 5 this morning. I'm hoping we can make it down to verse 4 this morning. We have spent the last three weeks on the doctrine of Freedom, our liberty in Christ, what it means to have spiritual freedom. And this is a subject that is often misunderstood and abused. It is a, it's critical for us to understand it because spiritual freedom 
is the foundation for all concepts of freedom, just as spiritual death is the foundation for every category of death. And as we look at the concept of liberty in the Scripture, we must go back to understand its basis in history, the history of Revelation. Now, this is not the history you will ever get taught in a Western Civ course, but nevertheless, this is history as it happened, and we have to go back to the events in approximately 1445 B.C. when God delivered the nation Israel from bondage in Egypt. That is the biblical model for teaching freedom and liberty. Exodus is the biblical presentation. Now, there are different ways that people in history have attained freedom, but nobody ever did it the way that Israel did it. Israel provides the the standard. If you want to see the satanic counterpart to how to attain freedom based upon a satanic concept of what freedom is, then you need to do an analysis of the French Revolution of 1789 or the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Freedom there produced absolute chaos and destruction. And that is the opposite of what biblical freedom produces, where you have true liberty and order and respect for people. And what we learn from an evaluation of the Exodus is that true freedom in life ultimately comes only from God's grace. We ask the question, who freed the Jews? Did they free themselves through insurrection and rebellion, or did God free them? And God intervened in history in order to free them. It was not done through civil disobedience or crusader activity. They didn't go out and agitate. They didn't develop a political party like the communists did. They went out, they were, they were passive in the act, and God provided the freedom for them. So we see that it is ultimately a basis, that ultimately freedom is based upon the concept of grace because we have to understand its opposite. Sometimes it's best to understand, in order to understand a subject, we have to look at its antithesis. So on the one side we have freedom, and on the other side we have slavery. Now here we have to ask the question, how did man become enslaved? Man was originally created free in the Garden of Eden. So man is created free, there is no hindrance to him whatsoever, and Yet when he fell, when he disobeyed God, the result was that he became enslaved to sin. And that slavery to sin becomes the basis for all other forms of slavery. For example, after Adam disobeyed God, all of a sudden the earth was going to have all of botany changed. It was transformed. I mean, we have such a superficial idea of sin and the effects of sin. We think that when Adam sinned, obviously he was became spiritually dead. He lost his relationship with God. But the ramifications, it was like a, a huge boulder or, or a meteorite hit the ocean and it just ripples out tidal waves in every direction through every category of creation. Botany, zoology... Uh, you just think about the fact that when God created all of the animals, every category of animal, He created them gramnivorous. They were all uh, herbivores. They ate grass. That means lions, Tyrannosaurus, everything ate grass and had a digestive system and a uh, dental system that was 
oriented to being a grass eater. Yet what happens as a result of the fall is you have certain categories of animals become carnivorous. There's a change in their dental structure. There's a change in their digestive tract. Everything changes. There is this ripple effect. The atmosphere changes. Meteorology changes. Everything changes because of that sin. And so ultimately what the Bible portrays is that the final issue in dealing with anything has to start with understanding the consequences, the devastating consequences of sin in the physical world, in the spiritual world, and in all of human relationships. So we go back and we look at how sin impacts Adam. Adam had absolute freedom in the, in, in the garden. He disobeyed God. One of the first consequences was spiritual death, and as a consequence of that spiritual death, he will die physically. So now he no longer has pure temporal freedom, does he? Before he died, before uh, he disobeyed God, he could live forever. Now he is going to be temporarily enslaved to a mortal life. For Adam, it was about 980-something years. For us, it's somewhat less. But then he also has to face the problem of eking out a living and dealing with uh, plant life. Prior to the fall, the plant kingdom was not affected by the fall. It was in a perfect environment, and so there was cooperation, so there was no stress involved. There was no uh, sweat of the brow involved. That was the consequence of sin, part of the curse. It was a pleasure to go out and work because the plant kingdom worked in cooperation with man in fulfilling his responsibilities. So there's plenty of time left over for Bible study, plenty of time left over to spend time with God as God came and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden every day. There's plenty of time left over for the pursuits of leisure. But after the fall, man is now in bondage to creation in the realm of eking out a living. Man must earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. And so now there is slavery involved in terms of of labor that was not there before the fall. So freedom is destroyed in every category of life because of sin. So therefore, to begin to deal with the issue of freedom, we have to go back and understand its spiritual causes. Now, that means that freedom must clearly be understood as God has portrayed it. What the Bible does for us is give us a system And I mean that it is a system, an integrated, categorized, cataloged, classified system for looking at at the details of life and looking at everything in the creation, every category, whether it's from human relationships to work to politics to economics, every anything you can think of, the Bible gives us a framework for understanding it. And this we call the divine viewpoint. God has one divine view, one viewpoint on everything, and He has expressed that to us in the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean He has told us everything there is to know or to deal with in a particular area. Obviously, that's not true. What God has done in the Scriptures is given us a framework whereby we can go into this area and operate and use our reason, our logic, and our experience under the authority of God in order to evaluate 
and properly understand and interpret reality and then operate within a proper understanding of reality. See, if you think that everything operates on the basis of chaos and chance alone, which is pure Darwinian evolution, and that's your starting point, then if you are honest, intellectually honest with yourself, then everything you do must operate, be consistent with that ultimate metaphysical principle. But nobody can live that way. No physicist operates that way. He believes there are absolute laws at some point. Even the agnostic, and we've all had our opportunities. I, I, I enjoy sometimes talking to an agnostic because an agnostic usually responds by saying, well, I just don't believe you can know anything for sure. And my question is, do you know that for sure? And it's like today we live in an era where the dominant thought today is called, it's the same old stuff that's been going on for years, multiculturalism. It's the same old pluralism that every culture has its own way of doing things and there's no real absolute. So once again, they make the statement, there are no absolutes. The response is, is that an absolute? See, they can't live in reality consistent with their presuppositions. Because at some point, they, they have to deal with the fact that if you jump off a 100-foot cliff, you're going to go splat. And they have to deal with the fact that there are absolutes, and so where did those absolutes come from? You begin to look at something like a DNA chain, and you look at the literally thousands of bits of information that are in one DNA chain. Now, did those thousands, for, for all those thousands of bits of information to be able to interlock correctly to make that a viable DNA chain, it all has to come together properly at the right time in the right sequence. The chances of that happening by chance are so infinitesimal that in prob- according to probability statistics, it's impossible. But not only is life based upon one of those happening, It's based on thousands of those events taking place simultaneously and coming together in the right order, unguided by any outside force. Well, where does the information come from? See, it's like taking a floppy disk that's empty and saying somehow, by pure chance alone, data is just going to attach itself to that floppy disk, and then when we pop it in the computer, we're going to get a word processing program. That's basically what evolution is saying. So you, God has one viewpoint, and he provides the framework for understanding every category of life, even political freedom. And then on the other side, in contrast to that, you have human viewpoint, which is really multiplex. There's all kinds of different human viewpoints. We can call it human viewpoint. We can call it cosmic thinking. The Bible calls it thinking like the world, the world system. The word cosmos itself implies a system. You have cosmic thinking, and you also, another way we could express it is pagan thought. Because this is all paganism, and by this I'm not using it as some kind of pejorative, but using it in its classical definition as non-Christian thought. And all non-Christian thought is predicated upon ultimate. No matter how far back you go in history, go back to the ancient Babylonians, you go back to the Assyrians, you go back to the ancient Sumerians, and you look at their cosmogonies, that is, their, their explanation of where everything came from, 
you look at their cosmogonies, their, their concept of origins, and they all come from chaos to order. Now, they did it within a mythological framework. Modern science tries to cloak this same concept with scientific terminology and scientific proof. So we have two categories. I've sim- simply, all I'm saying here, and all I want to establish this morning without getting sidetracked onto talking about evolution and creation, is that there's two ways of looking at anything. God's way or man's way. So we have to start off, what is the divine viewpoint? And the subject is freedom. So if we're going to understand or say anything of consequence about freedom, we have to start with how God defines freedom and what God defines as the loss of freedom and where it starts. To just talk autonomously about freedom, you can end up in all sorts of discussions and opinion battering and debates. So you have to start with what Scripture says And what the Bible says is that all bondage goes back to sin as the underlying cause. And until that is dealt with, either individually or in a culture, there can be no real freedom. That is why, in order to have freedom in any culture, there first must have a capacity for freedom. And that capacity comes only from orientation at a cultural level to divine viewpoint. Now, am I saying that that means that everybody in the culture is a believer? No, I'm not. But what I'm saying is as a culture, that culture is oriented basically to the authority of Scripture and divine viewpoint. And if you look back historically, that's the kind of situation you had uniquely in the United States in the 18th century. In all of human history, this is the first time you had a culture that had been so... Uh, impacted, not completely. There were a lot of human viewpoint strains coming in from Enlightenment thought, from Locke, from from uh, uh, radical French thinkers uh, like Rousseau and others. But basically, the culture was based on a Judeo-Christian view of reality that was heavily influenced by the thinking of the Puritans, by the thinking of uh, by Reformed thought, uh, by Calvinism. You had uh, Scotch-Irish. Presbyterians, and they had done a lot of thinking in terms of what does the Bible say about this and that, and and what does it say about freedom and politics and man's relationship to government and man's relationship to God and how this all works out. So when this country was founded, people had a capacity for freedom because of the doctrine that was in the souls of so many people. But once you remove doctrine from the souls of people, and once you remove their orientation to divine viewpoint, then you destroy capacity for freedom because you, go in, you destroy a concept of responsibility and in its place you put irresponsibility in passing the buck and that's exactly what we're seeing in our psychotherapeuticized, is that a word? Psychotherapeuticized, if not it ought to be, culture. We think in terms, we, we, if you go back, it's very interesting, you go back and you read the writings of people a hundred years ago and how they, they validate and recognize emotion, but they emphasize the importance of thinking and thought in controlling emotion so emotion just doesn't go rampant and go wild. Yet a hundred years later we live in a culture that's rejected absolutes 
and that is almost deified emotion so that everybody, if you're going to be a fulfilled, self-actualized person, then you have to get in touch with your emotions. And you have to let those emotions run free. And you can't stuff them down inside and all this other psychobabble that has no basis in anything except human viewpoint relativism. So the issue here in Galatians 5 is freedom. And freedom goes back to understand it to the essential problem that sin produces slavery. Now, sin produces slavery in two categories. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. Wednesday night, we started getting, we have been getting into an important passage in James chapter 2. And we're, we're studying the whole issue of what personal love is and what unconditional or impersonal love is. There are some things that we're going to be covering in the next five or six weeks on Wednesday night, and it's going to dovetail with what we're covering in Galatians 5 on Sunday morning. And that, in turn, is dovetailing with what we're going to get into in John chapter 6 at the second hour. Now, if you want to maximize all of this for your spiritual life and really understand some critical dynamics for spirituality, then you need to be here all three times. Because this is, going to, this is incredible the way all of this seems to be coming together at the same time. Now, sin produces slavery. So we have to go back and think very logically and analytically about the sin nature. So here we have schematic diagram of what the sin nature looks like and op- how it operates. Down at the bottom you have the area of weakness that produces personal sin. So in slavery, you have slavery to the sin nature. That's what Jesus said, he who practices sin is the slave to sin in John 8. So if you practice personal sin from the area of weakness, you come under the slavery of the sin nature. If you are a believer, what happens is you're going through life and then you have a test. With that test, there's a temptation. The temptation originates from the sin nature. Let's assume you're filled with the Spirit and you're, you're walking by means of the Spirit and you're applying doctrine. You have this test and there's a temptation. This temptation originates from the sin nature, but the source of sin is always your volition. Your volition has the option. You can sin or not sin, and now you choose to yield to temptation, and you choose to yield to sin. So what happens is now you are what the Bible calls carnal or fleshly, flesh being a term for the sin nature, and that means that you are under the control of the sin nature. That is now the dominant influence in your life. Now, the dominant influence in your life being the sin nature means not only are you producing from the area of weakness in the categories of personal sin, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, overt sins, but you are also producing up here in the category of human good. Now, human good is where religion has its source. Human good, all the good things that we do, and that we think somehow because it impresses us, because, golly, I did that, and it impresses somebody else, that somehow it impresses God. But God says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Hebrews 6.1 describes them as dead works. These works have no eternal value. Now, I'm not knocking human good per se. It's okay to give to charities. It's okay to do these good deeds, whatever they may be. 
And it's not restricted to simply what we would call good, good deeds or good works or charity or something like that. It's any production, going to church, prayer, anything that you're doing in life. If you're applying Scripture, but you're operating under the control of the sin nature, it's human good. Because it's not done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible makes it clear it's one or the other. This is what we're going to see in Galatians 5, is that there are two spheres of operation and there's no middle ground. You can't be a little this and a little that. It's one or the other. So we have human good operating. And human good is going to make a production in the realm of freedom and say, okay, now that I'm under the sin nature, I'm going to start producing a system of of life comprised of numerous precepts and principles. And by following these precepts and principles, I'm going to impress God and I'm going to gain God's approval. And on that basis, I'm going to either A, gain entrance to heaven or two I'm going to become uh, spiritually mature those are the two options this is related to what we call phase one justification and this is phase two sanctification or spiritual growth now this is the issue in Galatia Paul is dealing with the double facet that the legalists the Judaizers have come into Galatia following Paul. Paul spent several months there, taught a tremendous amount of doctrine. Uh, He might have even made a second visit back through that area before the Judaizers hit town. The Judaizers said, well, this is all fine and good to say that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you have to be united to the Abrahamic covenant. And the way you're united to the Abrahamic covenant is through circumcision. Because circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And salvation ultimately comes through the Jews. So you have to become like a Jew. So you have to become circumcised. So they were teaching in both categories that circumcision was necessary for salvation and obedience to the Mosaic law as a whole, adopting it as a Jew, is the basis for moving towards spiritual maturity. So what we have here is a very important concept, and that is the confusion that has entered into Christianity. You have all of your precepts and principles which outline a moral or ethical system. And the confusion is that if we are operating on a moral system or on an ethical system, that that impresses God, and that's what, that's what the spiritual life consists of. So that's not what this chapter is going to tell us. What this chapter is going to tell us is that there's nothing wrong with morality or ethics. Morality or ethics were given, and, and ethics were given to the human race by God in order to preserve and stabilize the human race. Morality and ethics are for believer and unbeliever alike. Morality especially is exemplified in the uh, prologue to the Mosaic Law is the basis for all categories of of human freedom, politically. 
This is not to say that we should go back and bring the Mosaic Law whole hog into any other nation. That would be wrong because the Mosaic Law is part of God's specific covenant with one specific nation, Israel. But it is a model. We can study the Mosaic Law and we can learn principles and precepts for what a nation's law code should look like and how it can guarantee freedom. But it is not the basis for either salvation gaining entrance into heaven or spiritual maturity, which is related to glorifying God. Now, in Galatia, they have confused the external works of morality with the internal transformation of God the Holy Spirit. As a result, Paul is saying that once you go back under a system of law, you are becoming a slave to law and because it's... And we went through the analogy and studied this in detail in Galatians 3 because the, the Jews were enslaved to the law. It was, a, it was not a system for ultimate freedom. And secondly, not only are you a slave to the law, but you're a slave to the sin nature. Why are you a slave to the sin nature? Put our diagram back up here. When you go into a system of morality or ethics that comes out of the area of strength, which is human good, what's its origin? Its origin is your sin nature. And when you're operating on your sin nature, whether you're operating down here in the realm of personal sin or you're operating up here in the realm of morality and human good and it's not under the power of God and the Holy Spirit, you're in bondage to your sin nature. And religion is one of the worst systems of bondage in all of human history. That's why when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John 8, and they say, well, we're Jews, we've always been free. They were lying four ways. They were in bondage to personal sin. They were in bondage to their sin nature. They were in bondage to the legalistic precepts of the Mosaic Law. And they're in bondage to the Roman Empire. They were just in absolute denial as to their position in reality. But Jesus is saying religion is bondage because its source is the sin nature in the realm of human good. Now, there are a lot of other things that we can say in breaking down our analysis of the sin nature. You see, it's ultimately motivated by lust patterns. The first lust pattern is approbation lust. And see, this is what happens is you want to gain God's approval. So you devise a system that impresses you and and gets the approval of other people, and you think that that impresses God. That's how religion develops. So we see here in the first verse that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, this is our position in Christ. See if I can find our diagram. This is our position in Christ. It's part of the 40 things that God does for us, the 40 positional realities God provides at the moment of salvation. 39 are irrevocable. The only one that is revocable is the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We are in the position of freedom, and Paul gives the command, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, freedom from the sin nature, freedom from Mosaic law. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't, he's telling the Galatians, don't opt for the teaching of the Judaizers, because the, and this is what his whole argument is going to be, the moment you take one aspect of their system, you take the whole aspect of their system, and you're, 
trying to live the spiritual life on the basis of the flesh. You can't do it just a little bit. You reach over here and you pull out this one precept. You have to take the whole package. You can't do it piecemeal. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of freedom. So, in summary here, let's have five points on freedom, bondage, and the sin nature. First of all, this will summarize our whole discussion of freedom so we can move on. Hopefully, you've got it by now. Number one, man loses his freedom because of the Genesis 3 curse. That's where man lost freedom. The first result is it takes away physical life, which is obvious. We won't live forever. The body is cursed. Nature is cursed. Ecology, everything is cursed. But God has still built into the system because of his, his omniscience, and God knows all the knowable. He has built into the system enough provision to satisfy all the needs of the human race throughout all of time. That means that when you see people running around like Chicken Little right now, screaming about the environment, screaming about ecology, and we're going to run out of oil, and we're going to run out of this, and we're going to run out of that, and we're going to, um, uh, the ozone layer is, uh, the ozone's disappearing, and we're all going to burn up, and all of these other factors. If you're a believer, you have to reject that. Now, there is a biblical basis for treating the environment and ecology responsibly because God created the, the, the earth and all of its systems and placed man as the suzerain or as the viceroy, vice-regent over creation, and we are to use it responsibly. But that responsibility is dictated by the framework of Scripture. We don't use autonomously. See, most environmentalism is dictated by a pantheistic concept where man is just another cog in the whole nature machine and there's no differentiation and God is nature and nature is God and so we're worshiping God through nature and that's a false basis for ecology and will end up in catastrophe. As believers, we recognize that God is in control. That doesn't mean we go out and abuse it. We have to use all the systems responsibly. But God is in control. Jesus Christ controls history and it's not going to collapse. We're not going to run out of anything. The ozone layer is not going to collapse. We don't get a new heaven and new earth yet. There's going to be enough oil and energy and ozone to go through the tribulation and on into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. No matter what happens. So we don't have to worry about running out of anything. God's provided enough natural resources in the system to handle his entire plan for human history. But man loses his freedom because of the Genesis 3 curse and everything after that is a struggle And we have to make sure that we operate on the basis of divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint. Second point, the issue then is whether man is foolish or wise. In foolishness, man rejects the divine viewpoint solution, which is the only basis for freedom. The wise solution is the grace solution in learning everything that God has to say about every category of life. Scripture says that we are to be pulling down strongholds, fortresses of thought. See, that's where the battle is in the spiritual life, ultimately is in thinking, and it has to start there. Third, we learn that because of sin, man has lost his moral freedom, so that we see from Romans 7 that man knows what is right, but he can't do it, and he doesn't do it. Romans, point number four, 
Romans chapter 1 gives us the cause and effect. We don't, we, um, when we sin, it's, it, we don't have the freedom just to sin and have good consequences. Sin is self-destructive and it is destructive of everything around us so that when we sin, no matter how innocuous it might seem, it starts a chain of events in progress that ultimately culminates in mass destruction. We see the, the patterns of degeneration that take place in history and in cultures described in Romans 1. The more you sin, the more God gives you over to sin. The more you're given over to sin, the more God lifts the restraint for sin, the more destructive your life becomes and the more the culture begins to fragment. And the fifth point is sin not only degrades humanity, but when the government begins to try to solve the ultimate problem through governmental solutions, it simply compounds the problem. See, when, if the issue is freedom, and the basic problem is fr- in freedom is spiritual, and the spiritual solution is rejected as the, at the core of a political theory, whether it's democracy or, what, or any other category of freedom, I mean, or, or of politics, then the result is that you have a political system that's operating outside the realm of reality because it's denied the ultimate basis for the problem. See, anybody can watch this. A lot of people can run around and say, this is the problem. And to one degree or another, we can say, yeah, you're right, that is a problem. It's the Democrats or it's the Republicans or it's this system or that system or the IRS or whatever. It's not the ability to define where a problem lies. It's the ability to define what the solution is that's the issue. See, too often people are swayed to pastors, to theologians, to politicians, because they can accurately define a problem. That's not the issue. All kinds of people can define the problem. The issue is what's the solution. Okay, that wraps up our intro on on freedom. Now... What we learn here is that Christ has set us free. This is for all eternity as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our position. This is a reality that we, we receive at the moment of salvation. Salvation is based on faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and on the cross he paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. God in his omniscience knew every sin that you and I would ever commit. There's nothing that we do that ever surprises God. It may surprise and shock you, but it doesn't surprise or shock God. And every single sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross so that he paid the penalty for that sin. And the issue now is what do you think about Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, you are identified with Christ through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. You are united with Christ, and we have an, an eternal relationship with God that can never be lost. But we have a temporal relationship that is based upon our right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, called the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. When we commit a sin, even though that sin is paid for, ultimately on the cross, it has temporal consequences. 
one of which is it grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thess 5.19. We are immediately outside of this sphere in carnality and no longer controlled by God the Holy Spirit. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit through 1 John 1.9. Now, that's the basis for understanding the mechanics of the spiritual life. Now, what's happening in Galatia is they are saying that they're denying all of this and saying the way you get here is through circumcision and the way you, get, you, you stay in a right relationship with God is through moral obedience. And then God blesses you for moral obedience. That's the Mosaic Law. Now, that is ultimately legalism. And there are two forms of legalism prevalent throughout all of, all of church history. One is legalism at salvation. Legalism at salvation comes in one of two forms. The first form is what I call front-loading the gospel. You front-load the gospel by adding a condition up front. If you want to be saved, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. And there are some groups that teach that. You have to believe. You not only are. You have to not only believe, but you have to keep on believing. If you ever stop believing, then you're not saved. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and produce good works, good deeds. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and give money. You have to believe and join a church or join our denomination and be baptized in our denomination. There are all kinds of faith plus systems. And these are pretty overt and obvious. Where it gets difficult is when you have somebody backload the gospel. No, they're going to backload the gospel and they're going to say, well, you, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But if you have saving faith, then you're going to produce works that are consistent with that faith. But if you don't have true saving faith, then there will not be works consistent with that. So the way you know whether or not you have saving faith or not is by examining the works in your life. Look at the fruit. You have to become a fruit inspector. What have they just done? They've just backloaded the gospel with works. Because according to this, you're still saying faith plus works. Because if you live your life from the point of conversion to the point of physical death, and for the first 15 years, you're consistent at Bible class, and you learn the scriptures, and you apply doctrine regularly in your life, and then... Uh, something happens, you encounter some test as God's trying to uh, prepare you for spiritual maturity and instead of responding with doctrine, you react in anger and bitterness towards God and you throw the Bible away and you give up and you quit the spiritual life and you become an atheist. So now you're, you're down here operating on the level of pure carnality and your life is no different from any unbeliever. They're going to say, okay, your fruit here was just... It was just temporary. You didn't have fruit your whole life, so therefore you are not saved because your faith was not saving faith. If it was saving faith, you might have had some bumps and grinds along the way, but if it was true saving faith, you would have continued all the way to physical death as evidence of your salvation. And that's not what the Scripture says. That is confusing the spiritual life with Saving faith. 
just, confusing justification with sanctification. See, justification is a one-shot decision. It takes place in an instant, a nanosecond, a microsecond in time when you believe with your mind that Jesus died on the cross for you. Now, some people say, well, that's just an intellectual faith. Well, okay, you, you, you can't have an emotional faith because faith, by definition, is a function of the cognition and volition. It's not a function of emotion. So we're not talking, don't, don't let somebody fool you into thinking that because you say you believe with your mind, you have to understand it with your mind. You have to understand the, the, the principle, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You understand that with your mind, and you believe with your volition. You make a choice that I believe that. And it means you understand it, and you trust it, and you're relying upon it. And that takes place at an instant in time. It's not a process. See, some religious groups come along and say it's a process, and so justification and sanctification become synonymous. You gain justification through going through various rituals. Now, this is also this is all, this backloading of the gospel is sometimes called lordship salvation. It, commus, commun, it confuses faith with commitment, and and basically says that that if you are a true believer, you're not going to live like an unbeliever. It just can't happen. And they've confused the whole concept of regeneration with destruction of the sin nature. And regeneration gives you a new nature, i.e., a called spiritual birth, because at the point of salvation, faith alone and Christ alone, God gives you a new spirit, a new human spirit, so you can have a relationship with Him and understand the things of God. And that is doesn't mean that the sin nature is no longer as sinful as it was. It's still there. You can still, a minute after you're saved, commit any and every sin you could commit before you were saved, because, and this is something we always forget, what is production? Production is a result. A result is the result of a cause. So production is a result. What causes production in the spiritual life? Two things, if it's true spiritual production. The filling of the Holy Spirit plus knowledge and understanding of Bible doctrine. If all this person ever hears is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the only doctrinal application he can ever make is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He doesn't know anything about confession. He doesn't know anything about walking by means of the Spirit. He doesn't know anything about giving. He doesn't know anything about prayer. He doesn't know anything about witnessing. He knows zero about everything else in the Bible. He doesn't know that it's wrong to commit adultery. He doesn't know that murder's wrong. He doesn't know lying's wrong. The only thing he knows is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you, can, you will be saved. So the only thing he can apply is salvation. And then people come along and they say, okay, there's going to automatically be fruit. Well, that's mysticism, folks. If there's no doctrine, then the Holy Spirit's just going to go zap and He's going to produce. But production is the result of application of doctrine. And if there's no spiritual life doctrine in the soul or for Him to grapple with and to believe and to apply, then 
the Holy Spirit, this, what this position is saying is the Holy Spirit is just going to make something happen. And that's mysticism. That's subjectivism. That ultimately destroys the power of Scripture. So there's legalism in salvation, and the second category is legalism in the spiritual life. And legalism in the spiritual life says that you have to do certain things and follow certain precepts, and once you follow them, that that impresses God, and God blesses you. But what the Bible teaches is that at the moment of salvation, you trust Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ has perfect righteousness, plus R. You're down here, and you are minus R. You lack the absolute righteousness God requires to have a relationship, so He can have a relationship with you. And at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father takes that plus R of Jesus Christ and imputes it to you. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might have found in us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us and then God who is plus R in His righteousness, what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. And this sets up a grace pipeline and blessing comes to the believer not because of what he has done, but because he possesses the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, that's at salvation and all you get at that point, if you don't grow anymore, all you get at that point is category one, logistical grace. God's going to provide what you need to sustain your life physically and spiritually on planet earth. Now, if you want to go to the category that James calls more grace and much more grace, you want to advance in the spiritual life, then you've got to have capacity. The Bible teaches that in eternity past, the Council of Divine Decrees, God looked at, at uh, uh, Dilbert down here. Don't you all just like Dilbert? So we're going to use Dilbert looks at Dilbert down here and says, okay, I'm going to give Dilbert 5,000 blessings. But if I give him 4,500 of those, before he's ready, it's going to destroy his life. Just like you don't give a five-year-old the keys to a brand new Maserati. has no capacity. You wait until he's about 35 years old before he has capacity. So the same thing happens in the spiritual life. How do you develop capacity? You develop capacity through learning doctrine. Let me find the grace, our grace learning spiral here, and then we're going to build on this a little bit. I'll slip it under here so we can write there. Okay, grace learning. The pastor teaches doctrine. The Holy Spirit who indwells the believer and under the filling of God the Holy Spirit makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 down through 16. Then the believer has to exercise volition at that point, think about it and understand it. It's analogous to eating. When you take food, the pastor is like the chef. He prepares the food. And he goes and gets all the raw ingredients and he prepares this sumptuous banquet and sets it in front of you. Now, you all have different dietary requirements. There's a lot of different things, just like when you go to a banquet, if all of us were to go down the street to a restaurant that had a big big spread laid out, 
we would all get different things and we would all walk away with, with the nourishment that we need to sustain us until at least the next meal. And that's what happens at church. We're laid out with a banquet and there's all kinds of things that I communicate within an hour or two hours on Sunday morning and everybody goes away with a salad here or a bowl of soup here or a steak here and that provides your nutrition. Well, I provide that, but your volition is to take it and put it on your plate. That's volitional choice number one. Then volitional choice number two is how much of that you're going to eat, especially when it comes to the apple pie and ice cream at the end. That's your volition. You put that in your mouth and then you begin to chew it. You masticate it. And that prepares it for digestion. The Bible calls that meditation. Thinking on God's Word. Chewing it mentally. And you understand it and it enters the area of your cognition in your soul called the noose or the mind, which is the staging area. Now it's understood and it is academic knowledge. Now you have to decide after you've chewed the food whether or not you're going to swallow the food. When you swallow the food, it goes down the esophagus into your stomach. Once it goes past the epiglottis, which cuts off the trachea so it doesn't go into the lungs, and it goes down the esophagus into the stomach, involuntary reflexes take over. It's no longer a matter of volition. You've done your part. Now your body takes over to break it down into various chemicals. The blood picks it up in the stomach and begins to transfer to different parts of the body to, to provide uh, nutrition for the various cells, for your brain cells, blood cells, carrying the oxygen to the brain, all of these different functions. And you have nothing to do with that volitionally. But that now becomes stored energy. Now some of us have more stored energy than others of us. But that stored energy, it is applicable. But it isn't applied yet. Until you go out and you move around, you go down to the gym, you work out, whatever it is, however you use your body or use your mind, that's when it becomes applied. But it's only... And the analogy is that once you believe it at this stage, now that you've understood it as academic knowledge, you believe it, and God the Holy Spirit takes over at that point, just as your body takes over with involuntary reflexes to make the doctrine usable and part of, I mean, to make the food usable in your physical body, God the Holy Spirit breaks it down, transfers it into the innermost part of the thinking of your soul where it becomes epinosis doctrine, and it is usable, but it's not used yet. There's another area of application. See, what happens now is you have this stored usable doctrine and you have application. This is what we've been studying in James. James says, don't become merely a hearer, but an applier of the Word. So you're going through life and all of a sudden you get angry and you know you're out of fellowship, so you start applying doctrine. You use the first stress buster. You use confession. You're going to admit your sins to God and get back in fellowship because you know that if you're going to have any success in life, it's going to be under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then you have another situation come up and it <clears throat> makes you a little... Uh, nervous and anxious, so you're going to apply some Scripture. You're going to apply 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. This is using the faith rest drill, which is stress buster number three. You are doing doctrine. 
you are facing this situation by mixing faith with promises. And you need to know promises in order to apply promises. So, and then you have doctrine. And you can apply very, various doctrines. And then something happens and you, you're a young believer and uh, uh, you're worried about your relationship with God, but then you remember the principle of grace and grace orientation and that your relationship with God is based on what, who and what Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross and not who and what you are. So now you're not going to worry about impressing God. You're just going to do what the Scripture says and rely on God to take care of everything else, and that's grace orientation. And then you learn, begin to learn a little doctrine. You begin to learn that you have to grow by means of doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and so that uh, means you have to be in Bible class uh, more than just occasionally. So now you're going to align yourself with doctrine, and you're going to start applying that in your life. You are doing the Word. You've become a hearer and a doer. This is how the whole process breaks down, and now you're beginning to experience the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, once you sin, what happens is, as we've already seen, you come under the filling, uh, I mean, you come under the control of the sin nature, and you're under a yoke to bondage. Now, this is where Paul is going here in verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Why? Let's go back to explain this conceptually. You have our top circle and bottom circle. Christ is of benefit to you when you are in the bottom circle because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. When it says Christ will be of no benefit to you, this is not saying that Christ will not save you. You can apply this in one of two ways because remember there's two problems in Galatia, one salvation and one sanctification. So let's apply it to salvation. First of all, if you, Paul is saying to them, if you, and it's potential, it's a third class condition here in the Greek, which means they haven't, the Galatians haven't really committed themselves to a legalistic, Judaistic course of action yet. It's potential. Paul says, if you do this, and because he uses the present tense of the verb and not an aorist tense, the implication is that it's thought. It's, it's not the act itself. That would be aorist tense. It's not actually taking... The thought precedes the act. So if they make the change in their mind to accept this principle from that point on, Christ will not be of any benefit to them. Why? They're outside in carnality. Without the filling of the Holy Spirit, Christ is of no benefit to them. Doctrines of no benefit to them. They have chosen another system for salvation if they're not a believer, in this diagram, if they are a believer, they're trying to gain spirituality through uh, approbation works and uh, uh, gaining the approval of God through their own merit. So Paul says, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And then he says, and I testify again to, to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to the whole law. See, circumcision may seem like a little thing, but you're buying into a whole system, a whole way of thinking. It's either the sin nature or it's the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul is drawing a dichotomy here. There's only two approaches. There's the correct approach, God's approach, and there's the wrong approach, the human viewpoint solution, which is works. And if you just buy one element of that, you have to take the whole package. Now, James talks about this in sort of a reverse form over in James chapter 2, verse 9. In James chapter 2, verse 9, James says that if you violate the least part of the law, 
If you, uh, verse 10, excuse me, James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. So what Paul is saying is, if you put yourself under one part of the law, you have to put yourself under the whole law, every single precept. And James says, if you violate one part of it, you violated the whole thing. That's why you can't say in the spiritual life, well, this sin that I committed, it's a little sin. I didn't know it was a sin. Therefore, I'm still in fellowship because I didn't know it was a sin and I wasn't really aware that that I did. I forgot about it and it's just a little thing. It doesn't matter. How much sin does it take to violate the perfect righteousness of God? I mean, when we talk about the two most pronounced sins related to these passages, number one is Adam just ate a piece of fruit, folks. He didn't commit murder. He didn't commit perjury. He didn't, he didn't commit adultery or rape or lie or anything like that. He just ate a piece of fruit. On the other hand, the example in James 2 is that you have a rich guy come into the church and he is shown preferential treatment and seated in the place of honor and the poor guy who just comes in off the street is seated at the back in a place of dishonor. They're just showing partiality. Now, neither one of those sins, eating fruit or showing partiality, will make anybody's top 10 or top 20. And yet God says committing one of those things violates the whole system. Whether you know it or you don't know it, whether it's a sin of cognition or a sin of cognizance or a sin of ignorance, it doesn't matter. It is a sin and it violates God's character. So you're out here and you're operating on another system and on another power. And that's why in verse 4 he says, You have been severed from Christ. This doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. What it means is that you are no longer in the position where you are basing your life on the grace of Christ. You're not basing salvation on Christ, faith alone in Christ alone, and you're not basing the spiritual life on a relationship with Christ. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, fallen from grace doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. And we're going to look at that and this whole concept of falling from grace when we come back next Sunday morning. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the tremendous provision You've given us at the cross. That You've given us everything we need for salvation and everything we need for the spiritual life that our life with you as believers is based upon what Christ did on the cross, and the same principle applies, that our our walk with you is based on faith alone in Christ alone, and through application of the Word and right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation, of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity right now to tell you that they believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. That's all that's required. Just silent prayer, forming words, in thought alone, all that's necessary. If you believe Jesus died for you, God says at that moment, that instant, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that we can remember the things that we have studied this morning and think about them, that they would challenge our thinking and give us a greater appreciation of reality and of your grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.